Well, good morning again, Amazing Love. We're going to be, if you brought a Bible with you, and we always hope you do, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. We're in the Old Testament today, chapter 8, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book into the Bible. If you want to look it up in your Bible or if you brought a Bible app along, we welcome you following along. We'll be in Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 10. But before I get there, I... uh, I want to tell you about one of my most exciting and, and really most memorable uh, experiences that I had when I was in middle school and freshman and sophomore in high school. And that was I, with a friend named Tim, joined a boxing club. And it was fantastic. This, the coach was this quintessential old guy who had boxed. He came with the cauliflower ears and I'm like classic boxing coach. It was awesome. And he really knew his stuff. And, um, and my, t- my, my friend and I, Tim, had so much fun with this. His, uh, his parents worked during the day. So when we wanted to get some extra practice in, uh, it wasn't very far from the gym to his house. We would ride our bikes from the gym to his house and move all the furniture back against the walls and as much of it out of the room as we could and uh, have further boxing practice. And one of, the, one of the moves that we love to practice, which is a classic basic boxing move, is jab, cross, hook, uppercut. I'll say that again for you. Jab, cross, hook, uppercut. And, and the reason that's a classic move is by the time you get to uppercut, you've set your opponent up because he doesn't know where the next punch is going to come from. And even better than that is something like jab, 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 cross hook, uppercut. Because he's led to expect jabs are going to come, jabs are going to come, and he sort of gets in that rhythm of avoiding your jabs and then come the cross hook uppercut and he looks a little bit like this. And I looked like that a couple times when my friend Tim caught me in the living room. And um, there were a couple times when I made him look like that when I caught him. And we had just an absolute blast. We didn't have the nice UFC gloves. Um, But we did buy boxing gloves for this. Now why am I starting out with this story? Because if we know how to do that in boxing, the devil knows how to set us up too. And, and one of the ways that the devil sets us up is, is not jab, cross, hook, uppercut. It is prosperity, 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 difficulties and hardships. That's his uppercut. And so we today live in a, a place that we've enjoyed for a long time a lot of the devil's jabs of prosperity. And the uppercut is what happens when we begin to experience our first bout of hardship. That's what we want to talk about today. But interestingly, the devil set the children of Israel up exactly in the opposite way. I mean, precisely in the opposite way. Because if you think about 
in the Old Testament, their wanderings in the wilderness, what was that? The jabs of the devil then were difficulty, difficulty, challenge, difficulty, and then all of a sudden prosperity. And, and so what does that do? What does that threaten? Is that really a risk if after all these hardships, I, I think about my own mom and dad growing up in the Great Depression and then going from the Great Depression to World War II. And the Great Depression followed World War I. Difficulty, difficulty, difficulty. And then you get into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on in today, prosperity, 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 growing prosperity. What does that do? Well, this is going to answer that because that's exactly the situation here. And uh, I'm going to read it with you from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 to 18. The children of Israel, the context is that they've just come out of the wilderness. They're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. And Moses gives them a warning. And he warns them to watch out for the dangers of prosperity. So let's, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at verse 10. And he's talking about now, this is going to come later, guys, when you're in the land and you've settled in. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when your bellies are full, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, hardship after hardship, in other words. That thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, he brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something that your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So let's start right away with the first fill-in, and the first fill-in at the very top is prosperous times are often more spiritually dangerous than hard times. In other words, when do we expect to really have our faith challenged? I think for most of us, intuitively, we're going to say during times of adversity, during times of difficulty, when things are very, very challenging, when, when we're exper experiencing uh, illness, or when we're experience, experiencing poverty and we don't know where our next meal is going to come from, when we're experiencing grief and loss, those are the times we tend to say, watch out for those times because that's really going to challenge you. And Moses, to the children of Israel, says, actually, maybe those aren't the most challenging times. 
maybe the most challenging times is they're still coming for you, even after you've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and you went through all those circumstances we just read about. Actually, maybe the challenges to your faith are going to come when things are good. When you're feeling prosperous, when you've built big homes, when you've got plenty of money in your pocket and in your bank account, maybe those are going to uh, challenge you even more. Let's take a look again at some of the first verses that we read. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. So I, I highlighted those words because really Moses is giving the children of Israel and us the antidote to the dangers of prosperity that tend to lull us to sleep and in a very specific way, as we'll see in just a moment, the antidote is worship. To keep turning our face toward God, to keep remembering all the things, all the good things God has done for us. Be careful, here's the warning, that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you this day. He says, see, you got to be careful because when things are good, we have a tendency to develop this amnesia about God. We have a tendency to forget, hey, there's a capital G giver who has made all these things possible for me. Now, some of us during good times will remember God, but, but, but remember this. Jab, hook, uppercut, you know, all these different punches, right? That God will sometimes allow the devil to change things up on us, and that becomes common. And so when, when we are in good times, we worship God maybe because the times are good. Darlene Check is um, a, a very famous worship leader, I'm sure, our worship people have heard about her. She was one of the founders of Hillsong Worship. I love what she says. Why do we worship God? And Darlene Check says, we don't worship God because life is good. We worship God because He is good. So whether it's bad times or good times, what's this quote say? Look to God. Worship Him. Bring Him into the into the picture. Because you know what worship really is? What worship really is, is worth-ship. Meaning, we come here to publicly worship, but sometimes you worship at home through prayers and through your Bible reading at home. Maybe you have uh, times together as a family around the dinner table after dinner to have a devotion. And do you know what you're doing when you worship, whether it's here or at home or maybe even in your car? Really, the very essence and core of worship is worthship. You're telling God what He's worth to you. And in fact, the, the, uh, the interesting thing about all of this is as we tell God what He is worth to us, it forces us to face back to God rather than to face into ourselves and stare at our own belly buttons, which is a big danger during times of prosperity. Here's my encouragement. 
My encouragement to you is to think of worship as worth-ship. And to take times during the week, we're going to hear Jesus did that in a few moments, where you have a plan to tell God, God, this is what you're worth to me. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to face up to you. I'm going to ask for forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to uh, commit to uh, sharing with you the times when I've fallen short, when maybe my pride has gotten a hold of me, and I think it's all about me. That's been the theme of the past several weeks here. And to bring myself back to, God, you are worthy of my worship. So here's what I want you to write down. In good times, worship of God is the right response. You know, even in heaven, that's what this is going to look like? Put that uh, revelation passage up. Even in heaven, look at this. You are worthy, our Lord and God. This is from Revelation. It's a picture of what life in heaven is going to be. Heaven is going to be occupied not only with our words, but with our actions saying, God, you are worth my worship. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. All right, so that's the first point. Worship is worship. Be careful for prosperous times. In good times, worship of God is the right response. Let's go on. Number two, the specific spiritual danger of good times, times like the ones that most of us are in right now, is pride. And how do we know this? Well, in your, in your uh, uh, notes, I've... I've picked a few snippets, but I want to go back and read over the whole thing. And what you're going to say is, see is God warning us that instead of getting all wrapped up in ourselves during good times, stay wrapped up in Him. Stay wrapped up in all that He's done for you. So let's take a look at these next verses from the book of Deuteronomy. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God. In other words, in all your wealth and comfort, the temptation is going to be to get wrapped up in yourself, to, to think, going back to the title of our series, by golly, it is all about me. Look at what I have accomplished. And, and he, will, he will say that in just a moment. And in getting wrapped up in yourself, in making it all about yourself, someone's going to get pushed to the side, and that someone is going to be God. You'll forget him. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. Remember all the good things this God has done for you, in other words? That thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, he brought you water out of a rock, a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness when you were complaining about not having enough food to eat, by the way. Something your ancestors had never known. 
to humble and test you. Humble and test them because guess what? They thought they had to do it all and God said, I'm the capital P provider. I'm the giver. Just look to me and you'll be taken care of. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Anybody ever been tempted to think this way when you've been successful? I think every human being has this temptation to kind of quietly think, wow, I did this, I did that, and now I have this house, and I have this car, and I have this money, and I have all these wonderful things. I'm a capital P provider. I'm a capital G giver. And, and, and what Moses is warning the children of Israel about, uh, really warning us about, is prosperous times can be so threatening to our faith because when we're doing well, when things are going great for us, there's just this natural human tendency to begin to think, I did that. Or we, human beings, did that. That's what made this happen. And, and God is saying, don't let me get blocked out in this picture of your prosperity. Remember, during the hard times, what I provided for you, and now during these prosperous times, what I'm still providing. Don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. We live in a world that kind of teaches this, that this kind of faith is old school, is not really necessary anymore. It's, it's not really important anymore for us to, to look to God for things. In fact, um, it's interesting how many entertainers nowadays have become philosophers. And I came across a quote. How many of you know James Corden? He was a, he's a comedian, had a show on television, British guy, pretty funny sometimes, loves to sing with other celebrities. Those are some of my favorite videos, by the way. Well, like all late-night hosts, he has um, a band leader. And I'm going to put a quote up from James Corden's band leader. No, not C.S. Lewis. Go back. <laughs> Reggie Watts. That's our man. His name is Reggie Watts. He's the band leader for James Corden. Here's what his observation is. Religions are the training wheels of self-enlightenment. They can be helpful in the beginning when you're still small and weak and don't really have your act together. Religion can help you, but at some point, they must be let go. That's what your world will teach you. Kids who are going to college soon, or maybe you're already in college, expect to hear that message. You'll hear it from all your professors. Adults, realize that when you're on social media or when you're reading on the internet or when you're watching television programs, even favorite entertainment programs, behind 
all of that and embedded in the messaging that we hear today is a thought very similar to this. If you're a religious person, it's okay. It's okay to have faith. It's okay to believe in Jesus if you need those training wheels for your life. And how does that come across to you? In any other arena, if someone said to you, ah, thank goodness you're still using those training wheels at 20 years old, at 30 years old, at 40 years old, you need them. Does that make you feel strong, filled with power to have someone accuse you of needing training wheels, a crutch, in other words, for your life? This is the insidious message of our culture, of the sinful world that's around us. And I'm, I'm just putting it up here to help you realize why do people stop paying attention to God? Well, sometimes it's because the world around us is teaching us that's weak. That's useless. That's training wheels to believe in God. So I want, I want you to look at that C.S. Lewis quote, put that back up. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. A lot of time this messaging is coming from proud people who are looking for ways to look down on others, to look down on you. So be very careful because there is often a motive behind it. And we have to be careful that we don't catch this as Christians because we just as much as anybody can develop a pride that causes us to look down on others. And the, and the difficulty, C.S. Lewis says, when we develop this kind of pride that has us always looking down, judging others, pointing fingers at others to make ourselves feel more powerful because, hey, if they're weak, certainly I am smarter and stronger than that. That this is an illness that will cause us to lose sight of God because as C.S. Lewis says, if I spend all my time looking down on others, what time do I have left to look up to a God that I so desperately need for his power in my life? Here's what I want you to write down. At the end of the day, pride, that, this is all pride, and pride equals worship of ourselves. That's all pride is. Pride is when I think I'm all that. It's all about me. I'm the one who does all the providing. I'm the one who has the strength and the power. And what it does as Moses points out to us, is it causes us to forget God. It causes spiritual amnesia. I want to put up another slide, Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, notice what people who allow pride are called, to pride to get a hold of them are called. They're called wicked men. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. Why? In all his thoughts, <laughs> there's no room for God, the psalmist says. So make sure, brothers and sisters in Christ, I beg you, leave room for God in your life. And now I want to talk about, okay, if, pastor, if you're saying, leave room in God for your life, what, like, what does that look like practically every day in my life? And that's, that's the third part. 
We can't let God get out of sight, ever. Caused by our pride, caused by looking down at others, caused by turning around and not facing up to God because we feel guilty or ashamed, we can never let God get out of sight. Why not? Here's your fill-in for the third part. Out of sight is out of mind. So we need daily habits that encourage us to humbly face God. Now, and what does that look like? Well, let's start with Deuteronomy 8.18 again. But remember the Lord your God. By the way, remember, especially in the Old Testament, is one of the most used commands. Because if you read through the Old Testament, you'll understand why God keeps saying, remember me, remember, because they kept forgetting it. And then it would cause all kinds of hardship and pain. So here it is again. Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Let's just remember, if we think we're the power, where, where did all this come from? Luther has a beautiful explanation. He says, God has created me with my eyes and ears, my hands, my feet, my mind. What a beautiful reminder that, that everything that we have with which to create wealth, as Moses points out, ultimately that all goes back up to God. He's the one that gives us everything that we have. And do you know who even recognized this? And created habits around it? Take a look at Luke chapter 4. He is Jesus. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And he had a habit. The Bible doesn't call it a habit. It calls it a custom. But it means the same thing. Jesus had a common pattern in the way he did things. He did the same things at the same times, what we would call a habit. He went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to study the Bible and to read the Bible in the synagogue, to actually even lead worship for a little while. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God. And what did he have? He had customs. He had habits to keep him turning back to face up to the God who is the capital P provider, his Father. And I think that's so important. If Jesus needed that, how much more do we need it? As imperfect and sinful as we are, as fallen as we are, if Jesus had customs and habits. So what does that look like? I want to show you a couple pictures, some things I've learned about habits. I want to show you a picture of me waking up every morning. Okay, when I wake up every morning, see the Z's up here? I'm out of bed, but I'm still asleep. Anybody ever, uh, other have, yeah, you're kind of like, oh, I want to wake up, but I want to go back to bed, right? Well, that's the cue to develop a craving. You can write this down in your notes, because I think it'll be helpful. And you know what my craving is for? Coffee. 
right? And so how do I respond? Well, I go down, lift the coffee pot into the mug that I've grabbed from the cabinet and pour some in, and then there's my reward. I get my sip of coffee, and the caffeine starts to course through my veins. It's awesome. Every day, this is my habit. This is my custom. Cue, craving, response, reward. This is what a habit looks like. And and the reason I encourage you to write this down is, if you can know what a habit looks like, you can change your habits. You can change them by just saying, what's the cue that's triggering this craving? And then you can begin to address it. If you want to build a habit, you can purposely create cues and triggers. If you want to break a habit, you can get rid of cues. Here's an example. I love cookies and donuts and pretty much anything that has sugar in it. Cake with uh, a generous layer of frosting is also awesome. Only if I keep eating and eating and eating that, like I kind of naturally want to, uh, it's not great for me, health-wise. So if I want to break that, I, I can't have a lot of that in my house because what does it do if I walk into the kitchen and there's a whole big tin of cake? Like, that's going to cue me or trigger me. And then I'm going to have the craving, even if I wasn't thinking about eating cake, when I walk into the kitchen and I see the cake, so what do I got to do if I really want to stop eating so much sugar? I got to go into the kitchen and into the pantry and I got to drag all the sugar out and sadly throw it in the garbage because it's cueing me. So this is a very powerful thing to understand. Now, I'm going to go next level with you. You ready for this? Here are the four laws, and I don't know if you can actually see this because it's a little pixelated, but I'll tell you if you want to write these down. If you want to build a habit, if you want to build a custom, make it obvious, first of all. If I want to read my Bible in the morning, you know where I put it? On the chair that I sit down in with my cup of coffee after I've grabbed it. There it is. I can't really even sit down without feeling it underneath my bottom. And hopefully I see it before I sit down. So I want to develop a morning reading habit. I make it obvious. I make it attractive by getting my cup of coffee first. Sometimes by putting a little uh, Christian music on. And now I have my little environment. It's an attractive environment. Julie sits next to me. She does hers. She's pretty attractive in my eyes. So that works. Make it easy. So don't, anything that you make hard is not going to tend to develop into a custom. And then finally, make it satisfying. The beauty of the Word of God is it is satisfying. You want to build habits? Whatever habits you want, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. Now, you want to build a habit of facing toward God? not forgetting God, then you just think about what are the things that help me remember God, that help me face God, that help me go back to God and not allow me to forget that He's the one 
He's the one. He's the power of my life. And most of all, don't forget the most powerful thing of all. But before I get there, here's your, here's your final fill-in. The antidote to worship of self is creating habits of humble repentance and remembrance of God's gracious promises. Create some customs like Jesus did. Create some habits. And you will be, by those habits, drawn back to facing God and keeping Him in your life and not forgetting. I just asked you, what's the most powerful one of all? You know, the Bible tells us what it is. The power of the cross. What has the cross done for you? The most powerful thing of all. It's forgiven all your sins. It's taken away the power of Satan and death. It's, it's given you true strength to know that Jesus, the Son of God, died for you. That's the power of the cross. Paul the Apostle says this. He says, for the message of the cross seems foolish, seems dumb. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that's you and me. There's nothing more powerful. The cross is the power of God. So when you're thinking about how do I face God daily, I want you to think about that cross and its ultimate power for you and for your life. I want you to think that Jesus, in his great grace and mercy, decided to lay his life on the line for you. To give it up for you so that you could have life. To exert his power in a way that seems foolish to many, but is the most powerful thing he could ever do for any of us to give you eternal life where you can worship God and tell him what he's worth every day for eternity. The power of the cross. That's the true power. And that's why it's not about you or me. Power is about Jesus and it's about the cross. It's about the foolishness of God, which is also the power of God. And you know what Jesus did on that cross? Put that picture of the boxing back up. That's what Jesus did. Jesus delivered a knockout punch. A knockout punch that took care of the devil, that took care of death, that took care of you. And I want you to keep that image in your mind because... That's really not a picture of Jeff Gunn boxing in middle school, okay? Just to clarify that, that's not what that is. That's a picture, a metaphor for what Jesus did for you that makes the cross so powerful. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your love the love that caused you to send Jesus to be our Savior, to deliver the knockout punch. That's true power. And defeat Satan, sin, and death. Lord, we are forgiven because of the power of the cross. And Lord, help us always to look to the cross for the deepest and the greatest power there is. Lord God, Heavenly Father, also we pray, send your Spirit to, to help us develop as Jesus himself had, the Son of God, your Son, to develop customs and habits 
that encourages us, encourage us to never forget you, but to always face up to you, whether it's in repentance or in great joy. And know that you, God, and you alone are the power of our lives. Truly, Lord, you do so many amazing things. You turn graves into gardens, bones into armies, and seas into pathways. Lord, we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join with me in the Lord's Prayer? Or rather, in the Apostles' Creed? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.